Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about? Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Today, we are partnering with the Roseville Alzheimer's and Dementia Community Action Team out of Roseville, Minnesota. They are a wonderful resource for care partners and professionals and those living with a diagnosis. So again, uh, thank you for joining us today. Now, before I introduce our guests, I always like to do a little housekeeping. So first of all, if you liked our opening music, it's by a local band here, the Mark Arneson Band. And the featured singer is Maya Dore. And the song is called Clearing Call. So if you like it, go ahead and download it on any of your favorite uh, music platforms. If you're new to our show today, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people all around the world. So maybe, just maybe, you can be one of our guests in the future. If you have a story or a thought, maybe you have a service product or tool, please reach out to me. I would love to learn more. Now, I do want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, which is the global resource directory and events calendar that we uh, launched the end of last year. We are growing every day. I'm really excited about that. So check that out. It is free to use. You will not be asked to sign in or have an account. Uh, No personal information is given. And if you have a resource product or tool that you'd like added, that's very easy to do. We have both a free listing as well as a couple of paid ones for those who want more promotional assets with their listing. On there you will also find the Memory Cafe directory which is critical. Those are coming back in person um, yet some are still online. Mine for example has decided they're going to continue online because they're nervous that we might get shut down again and they just don't want to go through that pain of going through that process. Let's see I want to give a shout out to Coral Health. They are still allowing people to download two of their apps. One is Music First, the other is Coral Faith for free throughout the year that started during the pandemic and they are just so gracious at allowing people to continue uh, to download that. I also want to give a shout out to Artists Senior Living. I'm going to be doing an event for them called Conscious Compassionate Care for care partners. And that is going to be August 10th from 6.30 to 7.30 Eastern time. And you can register by going to the artist way 
www.ncsf.com forward slash care. We'd love to have you participate in that. And then also coming up November 2nd, uh, Together for Dementia is having their annual conference and you can go ahead and register for that as well. You can find more information on our homepage at alzheimerspeaks.com. There's another international conference that's coming up in October uh, that people can also register for, but I'm, I'm waiting for information on that. So we're going to hear from the Footbar Walker and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. So... I am excited. This is going to be an interesting conversation. And it's one of those taboo conversations that people feel because we're going to be talking about the end of life journey. And I am so thrilled that we are going to be talking with Jean Bain. She is an end of life navigator. She's a dementia trainer and consultant. And Jean is also the co-host of a podcast called Death Unfiltered. She dreams that someday we'll be talking about hard subjects just as easily as we do talk about the weather in sports. Well, Jean, I am so excited to have you on the show today and have this conversation. I think it is one that is so important and there's such fear wrapped around it. And so I'm hoping that you'll be able to shed some light and give some calm to people when it comes to this conversation because I think birth and I think death are both beautiful things. And I think so many people are missing out on the latter because of fear. You know, I've just come to know know it as being an honor to be part of it and really have tons of beautiful stories about that. And I feel bad that others don't have have those stories. But before we, we kind of get into our whole discussion about end of life and navigating through it, I always like to ask all my guests, because this is Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, if you've ever been touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends. Well, that's such an interesting question for me, Lori, and thank you for having me today. I have never watched the brain change from day one till the final breath. I have always come in to a dying brain, dementia, Alzheimer's, when a lot of loss has already happened. But the reason I got into this work is I had a very close friend that I became friends with while he was in the middle of his journey. And I became fascinated with it. I've always been interested in the brain. And I walked with him when a lot of people were needing to back off because they only saw loss. And it really informed the way I look at dementia because I've never been, I've never seen the entire decline. I haven't had anyone in my family. So at this point, it's friends and it's 
lots and lots of clients. Okay. And it is a very different journey to experience yourself versus to be a professional around it. And I have seen that just through my talks with people of, oh my gosh, I've been telling people for 21 years the wrong thing because now I'm going through it. And it's a whole different journey on that side. And so I think that's really true with, you know, pretty much anything in our lives. We can, yes. we can guess and we can think about it, but until we really experience or have deep conversations about it, you know, we really are just kind of, kind of guessing at what's going on, but through no matter what it is, you can still honor the experience. And, right. and right. I think that's what you do so beautifully. So people have this, this perception about interacting with someone who is actively dying as as difficult. And to me, part of that, I think is just stigma. I mean, we've been told that for years. So people believe that. And it's just this taboo thing. But it really is a a natural process. And you seem to have gotten very comfortable with that for yourself and helping others through. So how did you how did you get involved in becoming, you know, an actual life navigator? There's a lot of places where I could say that this began, but I think my favorite story is I think it began at my aunt Caddy's bedside. She was my great aunt and I was probably four or five years old. It's kind of a rough memory. And we drove to New York to visit aunt Caddy before she died. And I remember that I walked in the room as this very young girl and saw this almost magical human laying in bed with this big flowy hair. And it was like she was in a storybook. And I remember not being scared. I remember people being sad around me, but I remember thinking, oh, this is interesting. Just, and this is interesting. And then I think I took that philosophy throughout the rest of my life and eventually realized by talking with children that this is really the end of the first breath. It's just that there's just this pause in the middle where we live, but the birth and the death are just these two markers. That's a beautiful way to, beautiful way to put it. And I think there's that book called Pause. It's just a beautiful book that talks about that there's a lot of stuff happening you know, during this, this period of time in our lives. And we really have to appreciate it more and pay more attention to it because that's, I think, why there's so much fear at the end is like, well, what happened? Did I really live the life that I wanted to live and all those other questions and, and so forth. Now, you know, you talk that people can do lots of preparations, you know, when it comes to the healthcare directives and, and the wills and the prepaid burials. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of paperwork to keep us busy. But how can you help in those situations? Because I think a lot of times people think, well, I have all the paperwork. And Mm -hmm. so, and so I'm, I'm covered that this is what they've told me to do. And you know, from a task oriented thing, I get that, but there's this whole emotional side (laughs) to this, you know, life and death thing that isn't addressed. Anyways, I don't believe in the paperwork to the extent that it needs to be. It will all work itself out. Even if you leave a mess, it will work itself out. It might be really expensive, but what doesn't always work itself out is, is you creating that death plan And when a lot of women who have babies create a birth plan, and to me, I feel like you really need to create a death plan so that you at least know what people are thinking. 
if I don't know, Lori, that you really don't want to be in pain at the end of your life, it might be that as, as your family member, I would let a little bit of pain be okay if we haven't had that conversation. So to me, it's really important to look at practically what do you want those last five days to look like or those last three days to look like. So I teach a class, uh, lots of classes, but one in particular called Talking About Death Won't Kill You. And I really work with this question of what do you hope for at the end of your life? And people will spend a lot of time going into that question and going past that question. So if I will take people to after their death, what do you want to have cleaned up? What do you want to be done? What does it actually mean to be done? And if we start having the conversation about doneness, we might, my hope, is that we aren't as afraid as we walk towards that end. Well, I like, I like the term doneness because, the, you know, most of us have some relationships somewhere that we want repaired mm-hmm. and people don't think about those things and then it's too late or somebody can't get there in time or it's too uncomfortable to even repair it. You know, there, I mean, there's all of those thoughts. I also liked when you talked about pain because... I'm kind of that person that helps people transition as well, just very informally, you know, in family and friends. And one of the things that I notice with pain is a lot of times family is so consumed with their own emotional feelings that they're not noticing that someone's in pain because they can't, they can't say, Hey, I'm in pain all the time. (laughs) So you have to look for those, those subtle signs and changes within and the nurses aren't always there And so I think even being able to guide people on what to look for or have that conscious person that's in tune with that is so important because I know a lot of times I think the the loved ones, that's not what they'd wish for, you know, upon this person, but they are just so emotionally consumed. Mm -hmm. They're, They're not, they're really not there for the other person a lot of times. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to, to watch and be part of or second guess, all of those, those types of things. Do you have an experience with helping people with dementia kind of go through this death experience that you can share with us? And then I, I want to know if so, is it different passing over? Yes, I believe that it is. In my experience, it has been. It, and I... I think that we live in a world, because you and I both interact in this world of dementia, we live in a world where caregivers are often trained really, really well to support someone who's living with dementia, but they don't see a lot of death because we know that dementia is usually a very long experience. It's a long journey. And then suddenly there's a change and they go, whoom. And so there isn't a lot of frequency in memory care with end of life. Some yes, but not as much as in a care center or a hospice. The busyness around caregiving in this is so intense that the time isn't there to really care for someone at the end of life and the the frequency. So my experience is that we have to be their voice, the voice of someone living with dementia, even more so then we have to be in other times. So as a navigator, whether it's been in my personal life or professional life, I tend to be very ordered and I notice what's happening and I can walk in and, and see what's happening. But when you're in the midst of it, sometimes that's really, really hard. 
really hard. So I'm thinking really specifically of my mother. My mother was not living with dementia, but my mother wasn't a great communicator like a lot of people at the end of their life. And I remember saying the, the last night, calling hospice and saying, I need help. I need help. There's seven of us here, but we just need more help. And hospice said to me, you need to be the daughter. You get to be the daughter. So let us come in and help you be the daughter. So I think I kind of answered your question a little bit, but I also <laughs> went around it a little bit saying that it's really critical that we give space for people whose families are dying while living with dementia and giving them space to be the daughter instead of having to notice all of those things. Yeah. Well, I know when my dad died, um, we had a hospice in, <clears throat> and at that time he died in, in 01 hospice was physically there a lot wow. and then when my mom died in 2014 they were like hello I mean you were lucky to get them on the phone and sometimes you couldn't and so that whole experience in and of itself has changed and I totally agree with you that in a community if someone's living in a community and passes there that it is very task oriented mm-hmm. um, and it's it's kind of it's complicated too because the staff Many of the staff get attached to their to their residents and, you know, they need this grieving process, too, which in some communities is acknowledged and in some it's not. But it is critical, I think, to get back to the core of your relationship. I'm going to share with you a really quick story because I, I think you will um, very much appreciate this. Uh, and this just shows my mom living with dementia 30 years end of life, you know, unable to communicate. Three months before she really takes a turn, she comes to me in a dream and says, you're not going to be here when I die. I need you gone. I need to know you're going to continue this work. And the rest of the family has to experience death. And since I was little, my mom was always bringing us to funerals and wakes and her friends would go, Dorothy, you shouldn't be bringing the children. And she's like, they see them come in and they need to see them go out. You know, this is a natural process. And she was just a huge, huge advocate. So when my mom was actively dying, I actually had two keynotes. And she told me in this dream, I I need you gone so they will experience it. If you are here, you're going to handle it all. Mm-hmm. And so I left. My whole family thought I was having a nervous breakdown, except my daughter who understood because she was around. And um, my daughter ended up taking the lead versus actually my brothers in terms of the whole hospice business. And she was like 25. And so I leave, uh, you know, I'm gone. I've kind of dealt with this is what mom wants and I'll communicate by phone. And the next thing I know, we are communicating by video conference. I, I had no idea. It was the most beautiful thing. I was in baggage claim thinking my mom's taking her last breath talking to her and somebody on the plane then, you know, hands me a Kleenex when I'm done and says, heard you talking to the man on the plane about dementia the whole way. And I eavesdropped and I wish I had you when my mom Mm. with dementia and this, this whole thing just kept going. I got in on the last rites. I was able to, I have an older brother that kind of has a, has an edge to him and every now and then needs to get put in place. I could do that through video. Um, They were 
really struggling with how to care for grandma and couldn't get a hold of hospice at the time. And I'm like, she's really warm. I'm like, go ask for some washcloths. I said, and, and not just one or two, just tell them you want a whole bag of them and you want it's that. And, you know, she, she's going to go from hot to cold and that's okay. And this is how you do it. And so they physically were able to do all that stuff with the swabs and the whole nine yards. And it was, it was just a beautiful thing to be able to be away, but still be present and yet let them be able to physically experience. The, the last thing I want to tell you about this story is when I went to do my first keynote, I called my mom and I said, hey, we're in this together. That's our deal. And I said, I, <clears throat> I expect you here with me. And I, I go to walk up on stage and I literally, I tripped on the steps. I didn't fall, but I just, I tripped. And I looked up and all I saw was bright white lights. And at that moment, I didn't know if she had passed or if she came. Do my keynote, I get off the stage two hours later, I call and my daughter goes, mom, it was the strangest thing. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, as soon as you hung up the phone and telling grandma to get there, her body got so hot and so red and we could not cool her down. And she said, she just now has cooled down. It's been about 10 minutes. And I said, that's wow. when I got off the stage. So, you know, our connection are, there's so many powerful connections that I didn't know existed until I stepped into, I want to help with this process. What a learning experience and what a great comfort mm -hmm. to, to know that you are still connected at that level and so powerful. And I'm sure you have a zillion stories like that. Yes. And I want to tell you that I would love, I would have loved to have known Dorothy. How great. What a great human. Yeah, she was, she was pretty special, pretty special and still connected to her this day. And, uh, and same with my dad, you know, when he died, I, I put my hand on him. I felt him go up my arm, the electricity. And I'm telling my brother, touch him, touch him, touch him. And my brother's like, what, what? He didn't, <laughs> he didn't feel anything. And I, to this day, I can still feel the electricity of his, his energy, just leaving his body and going through me. I mean, it was just, just incredible. I love about about the story is that she told you you had to step away mm -hmm. in order for them to step forward, which is really my stretch. I can do that with clients. I can't do it so much with with family. Mm -hmm. But that she told you and that you listened. Yeah, because so many of us, even people who work who who professionally work in death care, will walk in thinking they need to be there for the death, mm -hmm. and and we're all there for the death. We're all there for the death, whether we're physically present or not. And we're all there through the dying process, whether we're physically present, present or not. Because if you're connected, you're connected. Yep. Yeah, I, I really do believe that. I really do believe that. Now, one of the things, you are actually a certified PAC member. And for those of you that don't know, that is a positive approach to care trainer and consultant uh, through, through Tipa Snow, who... If you don't know Tipa and you're in the world of dementia or dealing with it, you need to because she's just filled with tons and tons of great information. But I want to know, you know, what part of the training or was there a part of the training through Tipa that really helped you as a death navigator? Mm, boy, 
you know, I got involved in TIPA because in the in TIPA's work because I was helping this friend with the end of his life. And I had a conversation with a friend who's a social worker. And she said, You you talk like Tipa Snow. And I said, Well, who's Tipa Snow? And she said, You have to learn about it and you have to study with her. This is after my one experience with someone who was living with dementia. And I made so many mistakes, but I kept the spirit of walking in and honoring what was still there. And I think that that just that theme of let's honor who this person is, regardless of how much the brain has failed, regardless of of what is missing. Let's go into what's still there. And I think to have that affirmed, because I was already walking in that energy, to have that that affirmed was really, really beautiful. Of course, all of the knowledge and the brain information and all of that has been really, really helpful. But I think to just know that I'm with people and interacting with people who get it, who get where I'm coming from, has been the best part of the training of all. Well, and it it is a beautiful thing. I mean, just uh, think for anybody, dementia or not, it's nice to be accepted for who you are. I mean, that is that is something that is universal and yet so many times is forgotten when dementia enters the room. You know, I always tell people, don't let this disease take away your relationship. Don't let it take away your memories too. You are capable of of still holding on to all the pieces. And and if we're honest and we look in the mirror, we're not the person we used to be either. No. And so there are going to be people that are disappointed in us and feel a loss for us too, because we've changed. I mean, that's just, that's just human nature. Uh, You know, we, we move along the path. Uh, That's interesting what you took away from that and just being reaffirmed. And I think anytime we are reaffirmed in what we're doing, it makes us stronger and better at our work. Um, What about when a caregiver or a spouse or a family member passes, you know, a lot of times that is, that is really difficult for somebody with dementia. The person with dementia is still living, but their care partner may have passed or, you know, it could be a child. It could be a friend. Sometimes there's some delusions. Responses are different. Understanding is different. What do you recommend in, in that case? Well, the first thing I'd like to say about that is this word delusion. It's got kind of a, a non-positive view to it. <laughs> And I want to just set that off to the side and say, what if delusion is just a different time and space? And what Tipa would tell us, of course, is that everybody gets to grieve once. So people deserve to know that their spouse died or that their son died. But if they've gone through that grieving process and have had that information, we don't need to consistently remind them or ever remind them because they are living in a time and space in that moment where that person is still here. So I always recommend to people or what I do myself is to say, tell me about your mom or what's your favorite memory about your mom? Or I'll say something like, I remember your mom became an engineer. Could you tell me about that? And suddenly that person who's living with dementia is right here in that story and in that memory and in that heart space of connecting with their mother. So we're really meeting the need of grief without them knowing that there's grief there. 
Yeah, that's a question I get asked all the time. I remember I was out in New Jersey one time speaking and we were, we were having a conversation, came up in the training and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I will not lie to my mother. My dad is gone and I will not lie to her if she asks. And I said, you know, it is your choice on how you want to handle this. You were asking me how to not have your mom be upset. Mm. And every time you tell her, she's upset. So to me, the question is really, are you going to live in your mom's world or your world? And is the priority to keep her safe, happy, and pain-free or to tell the truth so that apparently you can sleep at night, you know, because that's kind of what it came down to. And I, you know, I told her, I said, my family struggled with that too. When my dad died, no one told us how to handle this at all. And so we had no idea. And even during the funeral, you know, my mom was there and she was gracious and she was caring for everybody else because that was my mother. And people are, people, no one thought she had dementia. They're like, well, you know, Laura, you're crazy. Look at her. And I'm like, yes, she's having a, a, a moment of clarity on this level, but she is disassociated from that is her husband in the cast. And people didn't really see the difference in that. Afterwards, she would sometimes ask, where's dad? And initially we would say he, he's passed, you know, and then she would go through this horrendous grief. And then we felt horrible and, and yet we didn't know what else to do. And then pretty soon we just kind of figured out by ourselves, well, you know, dad just stepped out. You'll see him in a while, you know, cause eventually we're all going to heaven and <laughs> we'll connect again, you know, and that was kind of our little white lie or our fiblet. And there were moments too, where you talk about delusions where my mom, and, and this is what I loved about where she lived is they, when she would be speaking to people from the past who have been long gone, they could have easily said, okay, she's crackers. We need a medication. She's not thinking clearly. And they didn't do that. And I don't know if that was partially because I was very adamant that again, she was peaceful and she was content. She wasn't hurting anybody, but I truly believe she was having conversations on the other side. And, yeah. you know, every everybody has their right to their own belief, but that gave me comfort. And maybe that was, maybe that statement's more about me than my mom. I don't know. But again, she was comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is kind of a, a key element, but I do think that we really need to train families more on what are some of the options and some skill sets when this happens, because so often a care partner will pass away before the person with dementia. And we have to be prepared for that because, you know, when you lose a family member, I mean, typically that's pretty traumatic and everybody is in a lot of ways busy caring for their own emotional needs and going through their own grieving process. And, and I think the person with dementia can often get overlooked like, well, they don't really understand, you know, or, they, or they'll forget. And that their grief isn't as important as everyone else's. Um, that it's somehow different. Uh, and, and I don't think that that's intentional, but I think that that happens a lot. When you think about the trauma of hearing about someone who has died and how that's here and you have to work your way out of it and let go of it. And then three days later, you ask where your mom is or your husband is. And then we say, well, he died. I'm sorry to have to tell you then we're back in this and it becomes this seesaw of back and forth and back and forth. And 
nobody's body needs that. Your body doesn't have to experience that. Mine doesn't. But somehow some families and caregivers think it's really important to reorient people back to their surroundings. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if someone's living in a care center and they think they're living in a resort somewhere. I'm going to go be in the resort because that's a lot more fun. And it's more fun for me. And it's more fun for that person who's living with dementia. Well, and what you did in terms of your redirection was tell me about this. Now you're enhancing and living a wonderful memory instead of the grief. And even just when you look at death and how we're looking at things, I mean, even calling it a celebration of life is sharing those memories, sharing those things that make us laugh and give us comfort and know that we loved and and were loved. That's a whole, that's a whole different experience. When my dad died, I remember and I had never felt this before, but I spun on his, I, you know, I was there and it was a brilliant experience. And like I said, I felt the energy go up my arm, but I kept reliving that over and over and over and over. And finally I went and talked to somebody and I said, I, I need to stop this. It's just stopping me. I mean, I feel like I'm losing my breath, uh, I, my focus and everything. And I can't get out of this spiral. And I think that helped me too with mom to understand that I didn't want her to go through that. And for whatever reason with my dad, I just, I I wasn't able to break out of that on my own initially. And, and I think some people do grieve like that where they just can't let go and they're, they re-experience all the time. And that can be so, so greatly painful and just inhibiting in terms of who you are as a person. Uh, One of the things that I have learned in my process is turning my grief kind of upside down, explaining, and I, and I had to do this for myself initially, and now I share it with others, but that no matter how bad you're hurting, you, you couldn't hurt that bad if you first didn't have great love. So many people never have that level of love. And so I turn it into how lucky am I to hurt this bad? And then it kind of gets me back to those good memories and what an honor this relationship was instead of all about my loss, it pulls me back into the relationship of, of the togetherness. And that, that for me has helped tremendously. But again, like you said, everybody grieves differently. Some people never acknowledge it. Some people spin, some people just put it over there and and others go through all the steps and some jump around in the steps. (laughs) You know, there's no there's, there's no, I don't know, in my opinion, there's no right or wrong way as individuals, but I think there are healthier ways sometimes to grieve. What, what are your thoughts on the right or wrong way about grieving? Well, I think that if I were to say there's a wrong, it's to not grieve mm-hmm. at all, to hold it in this, in this place. And then, and then everything else is kind of right. You know, to to be there and and be in the process. I actually worry about and have been spending a lot of time thinking about caregivers in communities who are losing people regularly. Their patients are are leaving and they're leaving either because they get better if it's transitional care or because they're dying. And I would love to see communities and Minnesota in particular, I would love to see communities really focusing on the grief of the paid caregivers. Mm-hmm. I don't, especially in memory care and dementia care, those caregivers are hopefully staying with people for the length of their journey or a very long time. 
in their journey. And then these people die and, and my heart just breaks watching the staff breathe privately, Mm -hmm. really have a hard time. And I would love to see us celebrate that a little bit. So that great love, that great love that you had for this person you were caring for, how can those people be involved in that, in that grieving process? Because usually it's just family or friends. And as a caregiver or a care partner that is a paid caregiver, I feel like there's just not that, there's not that venue for it right now. Yeah. I, and I think a lot of times with family too, they, they don't always know all the the paid care partners that are there. You know, with my mom, she had lived um, in her community for 14 years. So, I mean, they were welcomed in, you know, and, but they would ask and everyone's like, yes, come on in Barb, giving hugs and and thanking them for their work. Other communities will have like little ceremonies where they'll get a white rose and they'll put it on the bed. But is that enough? And then some will do kind of like a monthly ceremony for all those that have passed. Um, But that can get confusing, especially in a dementia neighborhood in terms of what are they really, where are they? (laughs) You know, um, is this a birthday party or what's this really about? I think that there really needs to be, in my opinion, even more with the staff in terms of, you know, a lot of times even like through shift changes, they typically focus and some will argue this, but I've seen it way too much. And I've heard it too, you know, so much from staff is they focus on problems. This was an issue with so-and-so this was an issue with so-and-so. But to be able to talk about the good that has happened and the pieces of the relationship, I think would be really healthy to incorporate on a daily basis and then add into that when someone passes, what's your greatest memory? And just uh, because what a nice way to honor them and to honor their relationship as well. And I think it helps people in the care community because some, you know, some staff are there we like it or not, for a paycheck. Mm-hmm. They're not really relationship-based, but having that process might get them to think of, what do I want to remember here? And we might we might be able to change their focus a little bit too, in terms of I mean, that they can still get something out of these relationships. And we might be able to up the staff retention. Exactly. Just, which is a buzzword, but it's also really important to all of us especially those of us who have family members who are going to live in communities and need care. We really want to focus on how can we keep people. Yep. Well, and, you know, appreciating cultural differences. And I'll go back to when my mom died, a a woman had called like four months ahead, wanted to have dinner with me while I was out in Arizona speaking. And, you know, I didn't know my mom was dying at that point. She actually was with me at dinner and watched my mom take her last breath. And she was of India descent. And she said, Lori, this is the greatest honor in my culture. And she said, I will go home tonight. This, I still get teary. And she says, I will go home tonight. I will cleanse my body and I will go to my altar and I will light a candle for the next 90 days and pray for your family. Oh, beautiful. Ah! To learn that that's what what they do and how they honor life and that she would do that for me, a perfect stranger, yeah. um, was just really something. 
And then of course she had to add something kind of funny. In, and she says, and, and there will be a baby born in your family. And I'm like, well, no, my daughter, they're not planning on one. And our joke was Danielle got pregnant. Grandma wanted back in, you know, so that was kind of our, our, our personal family joke. But to this day, we're still friends. I mean, the honor of that relationship and what we can learn from different cultures and, and ways people grieve and support people through that. It, to me, that was just a really uh, a beautiful, beautiful thing and, and such an honor to learn and to be part of. And, and I think there's so much of that that can be shared within staff, within family, if we just have these conversations, if we're not, if we're not so scared about them. Now, Jean, you are also a certified a TRE, which is a tension and trauma releasing exercise provider, which I think is brilliant. Just hearing that, I want to hear more about what is that and how do you use these exercises in end of life situations and with whom? When I first started getting certified, well, when I first started practicing TRE, I was doing it for myself. And I walk into a lot of situations where there's a lot of overwhelm and it's easy for me because I am a little slippery or in terms of empathy and I, it's easy for me to hold that and not let go of it. And we were talking earlier about that holding and that tension that happens when we talk to people about people who have died or really lots of situations. And I started using it personally. And then I decided to get certified. And I thought, how in the world does this relate to my work? And I would labor over how do I, how do I force this in? And then I started realizing that it actually really just is my work. Because if you look at dementia and you look at end of life, there's so much happening in the emotional system of the body, which is part of the nervous system of the body. And what TRE does is it, if you think of an animal who there's an event, the animal is chased, the animal will freeze and play dead or go into fight or flight. And then the animal will shake and release and go on to its next thing. And children do the same thing. So as adults, we really don't. If we start to shake because we're scared or we're giving a speech and we shake, or if we are really scared of a medical procedure and we shake, we pathologize that. We say, oh, she's nervous. She's this, she's that. And the way that I am able to frame nervousness, anxiety, and fear around the end of life and around dementia is because of TRE. So I don't pathologize shaking, even if someone is living with Parkinson's, even if they are having certain dying happening in the brain, which is causing them to do this. I will actually go in and say to someone, oh, it looks like you're shaking a little bit. Can I shake with you? And they'll shake and they'll feel better because they just let it go. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. And again, you're not making fun. They know it's been recognized. They don't have to try. Sometimes they're trying to hide it. And mm -hmm. then that I would imagine makes that even, even worse. And when you talked about empathy in a room, and sometimes you can absorb all those emotions and things, I, I'm like that too. And, and for me, I have learned, and this sounds really goofy, but I, I had to stop going to church for a while because sometimes I would just start crying and I would have greeters coming up. Are you okay? And I'm like, this is, this is not mine. I really don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm really fine, but I couldn't 
stop. I started like just squeezing that Kleenex in my hand and visualizing it going away. And so now I don't need a Kleenex in my hand, but I'll just squeeze. If you ever see me squeeze in my hand, it's because I have too much emotion in my body and I'm just trying to release it nice. um, because it's, it's making me uh, go sideways basically. And, and I think a lot of us feel that, but we don't even, a lot of people don't even know what's happening. So even just having a conversation about being able to absorb other people's pain or angst makes a big difference. And, and I love when you said about the shaking, just recognizing it and becoming part of it, becoming one with it so that it's not, a, it's not an anxious thing anymore. Seeing that it has a purpose. So mm-hmm. the shaking is actually your, your nervous system trying to rewrite itself. So mm-hmm. it's off and now it's going to find rightness. So if we can celebrate the tremor instead of shutting the tremor down, what will happen next? And that's kind of curiosity I stay in, especially if I'm working with people who are approaching their death, because they don't really, they often want to hold things in and not talk to their care partners and their loved ones. And they keep a lot of things in. Well, what if they can let go of that? Yeah. And a little bit. And have you found that to be able to work with a person with dementia? Because it sounds like you don't really have to even explain what you're doing. It's just kind of a natural thing that, that occurs when you join in. Well, what, what do we do when we see people's hands shaking quite often? We go in and we hold the hand. Yep. Stop it. So lately I've been doing this. Okay. And then I talk about uh-huh. it and I say, this is really good. And even if you just look at my, my face, instead of doing hi here, mm-hmm. sometimes, and this is seated and I'm not trying to get anything other than connection, but if I go here and we shake together, I say, oh, look at that. Look at how much we're shaking. Yep. There's this, there's this okayness about my voice and I'm not walking in saying, oh, we should get you some medicine for that. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, oh, look at that. What if yep. we just shook together a little bit? Yeah. And it just really reframes that. Is it a panacea? Is it a miracle moment? No, but we took a little of the shame out of it. Yeah. And we did it together. Well, and when you put your hand underneath, I mean, it, just that alone, it says, I'm here to support you instead of I'm here to kind of take over and control um, yeah. and your facial expressions. And I think that that's something that so many people don't understand is that people with dementia still read and rely on facial expressions, reading lips, they're taking all of that in. And, you know, what I have found, and I don't know if you have found this, and I don't have anything scientific, this is just from my experience, but I have found when there is a deficit in one area, um, the other senses kind of come more alive. Mm and take over. And even just in hospice too, with the death and dying, a lot of times people go, they can't hear me. You know, their, their eyes aren't open. He's like, well, they're not paying attention to me and really learning just to speak your truth or be in their presence mm-hmm. that they, they know. Yes. They know. And even if you don't speak their language, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's the rhythm. It's the facial expressions. And it really is, especially the rhythm and the energy you walk in with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally, totally believe that. A smile can do so much mm-hmm. and it's, it's inexpensive and we all have it. 
it brings this sense of calmness and, and okay, that alone. And if you can get your eyes to believe that too, when they're reading those, because sometimes we, we do the separate wife smile and they're still, <laughs> they're still seeing we're off balance and we're, we're hiding something in that they can mirror that back. And then we blame them. And, you know, we're the ones that walked in with the attitude and sometimes don't even know it either. So I think a lot of it is getting more in tune with ourselves and what are we really saying with our bodies, not just our words, kind of slowing, slowing down. And a lot of people have a hard time slowing down or going that deep, however you want to phrase it. I like to think as I'm walking into, into someone's room, I like to drop my hurry at the door. Even if I'm hurried all day long, I like to leave it at the door, making an agreement that I will pick it up the minute I get out. But in that room, I choose not to be in a hurry. I can still be on a time clock. I can still only have three minutes in that room, but I'm going to choose not to be in a hurry because that will be picked up. Yeah. And that is something I wish we would teach in school. And I was the worst, you know, I sell real estate and I had my phone and my pager and my this and my that. And even going to visit my mom, I would have all these things beeping and going off and, oh, I'll be right back. You know, I just have to take this. Guilty. And she, but, but she really taught me to just, the world will still spin. You're not that important. People will wait if you train them to wait. But if you train for this immediate response, which is kind of what we've done in our world, then we get pulled in so many directions and no one really gets totally served wholly. It's kind of like a, a Swiss cheese effect there where we're kind of plugging holes and feeling this urgency. And I think that makes us all antsy versus that gift of slowing down and being present. I know it can be hard for, it's kind of like going on vacation where you're antsy getting ready for it. And then you're antsy when it's time to go home and you kind of get that middle section where you're in the groove. <laughs> but if you can learn to really let go and just enjoy what it is, enjoy your whole vacation instead mm-hmm. of just a portion of it. If we can take that over and apply it to life, I, I think we just get so much more out of it, um, no matter what stage we are. Now, Jean, you are the co-host of a podcast called Death Unfiltered. I want to hear more about that. Who do you interview and, and what kind of experiences and stories? I, I can only imagine. But tell us more about your podcast. So we have 11 episodes and um, we're kind of at a pause right now. Big learning curve on doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. So I, I team up with a woman who is also PAC certified. In fact, she's one of the mentors in Positive Approach to Care. Her name is Stacy Sokol. And we just got a wild hair just to go ahead and start a podcast, neither of us knowing very much about it. And what we really wanted to do is focus on people's stories, but also give a little content in between. So we invited people to come on the show and really drop in, just see what would happen if they had an idea and they wanted to tell a story. We have had people talk about childhood experiences, experiences as a chaplain, death in general, and how their community works with it, walks with it, experiences it. We had a someone on the show who had lost her dad recently to COVID. So we're doing all the way back to childhood and all the way recent with COVID. And it's 
to me, it's just been an amazing gift to listen to the stories and the comments that we've gotten from other people about these stories. And, and I'm a storyteller by nature. So I do creative writing and I teach creative writing and legacy writing. And I also do improv. So I believe that our stories, whether true or not, can have a huge impact on our bodies. Oh, I, I totally, totally believe that. And I mean, some of the stories out there are, I mean, I have just some hilarious ones. I have some that have just taken my breath away. I remember when my husband's mom was dying and we had gone up to the lake and, and she told us to leave because she was in and out with emphysema and in the hospital constantly. We get all the way up to the lake and then knock, knock, knock on the door. You better get back in town. And we, we go back in town. At this time, I guess we weren't married yet. We were just uh, engaged. And my husband was Catholic and I made the assumption his mom was Catholic. And I was in the room or I was outside the room and the nurse said, you know, I think, would she like her last rites? And I said, yeah, I think so. And Tom was just really intense with his mom there and he's holding her hand and the priest comes into the room and stands at the end of the bed. And, and here she's whispering, barely, barely breathing. And all of a sudden she takes her arm and, and just belts him with her fist and says, you son of a bitch. I'm not ready to go yet. Tom doesn't even know the priest is at the end of the bed. He has, and she gets up and she grabs her oxygen and she does a jig to the bathroom. I mean, it was just like not ready to go. And, wow. and we, we were just like all in shock. And then Tom realized the priest was there and he's like, well, no wonder she's not Catholic. <laughs> and, um, and I said, I am so sorry. But for me, one of the beautiful things I got out of this was I had always heard how lively and vibrant his mom was. And I only knew her being ill. And in that moment, I got to see the real Helen. Beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. But yeah, there are so many things that can happen in, on so many levels, big and small, quiet and soft, that can be so impactful to a person's life um, in trying to honor that process. And like I said, I was trying to honor Helen. I just didn't know I, I was way off on that one, but you learn, you know, well, and how healing and releasing to tell the story. Yep. yep. You know, here was my little faux pas, but oh my gosh, what beauty and joy you got out of that. Yeah. Well, in the whole family, we you know, we told them the story and everybody just cracked up and that's okay. like, that's mom. <laughs> you know, that's mom. So it ended up being a really nice memory. She lived two more days which allowed more people to come in because they really didn't think she was going to make it, you know, the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. It's just funny how things, how things happen. And well, that funny is so important. Mm -hmm. It's so important paired with hospice because we don't stop with humor just because we're dying. Yeah. And, and I think that there's this stillness and quietness and somberness that we put on the process but someday I want to do a whole stand-up routine just of the hilarious things that I've experienced in hospice. Yep. Because I think it releases that tension. It's, it can be awesome. Oh, I, I totally, I totally agree. And to me, that's like the number one thing I look for in a relationship is humor and to give that up 
I mean, that is such a tremendous loss. You know, it rewires our brain and our physiology, the whole nine yards. You know, it's typically those humor or those comfort things that we choose to, to remember that really soften our heart and get us to say, how lucky was I? Mm-hmm. Well, Jane, this has just been a wonderful conversation. As usual, the hour just blows on by. I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you. So you have a website, mm-hmm. belove, Minnesota, MN for Minnesota, belovemn.com. And then you also have, um, if you go to your about gene page, they can really get in depth information there. By email, they can send you contact at belovemn.com. And did you want to give a phone number out too? Sure, I can do that. It's 612-475-5465. Wonderful. Well, Jean Bain, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. I know you're making a huge difference. Um, You did just in mind during this hour with your gift of love and insight regarding end of life. So thank you. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure, Lori. It's, it's great to finally meet you and to be able to share stories together. So thank you. Wonderful. For our audience, please like, click and share. This was a great conversation. Don't keep it to yourself. One of the biggest gifts we can give people is education and conversation regarding various things regarding dementia. This is an important piece that not only can help you with someone with dementia, but anybody in your life at all. How do we stay connected? How do we be graceful? How do we maintain someone's wishes? And how do we process our grief? I mean, we covered a lot in this hour. So I'm sure you've got stories to share as well. And maybe you're going to want to reach out to Jean to share your story on her podcast if they're, if you're taking, uh, looking for, a, for future guests too. Thank you all again and have a wonderful week and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.